You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Monster House presents... Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. In this episode, we're talking with Professor Richard Harrison of Mount Royal University in Alberta. Richard teaches extensively about comics, and we really enjoyed talking with him about comic books, their history, their use of monsters, and the way that the art form itself has changed over time. It's gone from being a popular post-war art form, to the target of a huge moral panic, to being dismissed as kid books, to rising back to a respected form of literature, to being the dominant basis of billions of dollars worth of movies and merchandise. And there are monsters in every step of that story. So let's just get straight to the Monster Talk. Tonight, uh, we've got a guest, Richard Harrison, who's coming to talk to us about comic book monsters. But before we talk about comic book monsters, we're also going to need to talk a little bit about what is a comic book. But before we talk about what is a comic book, we need to talk about who is Richard Harrison. So I've brought on a special guest to talk about Richard Harrison, who he is. Introducing Richard Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've known that guy a long time, I'll tell you. I mean, the thing to, the thing to know about me in this context most is that I, I teach comics and graphic novels at uh, Mount Royal University in Calgary. Um, I've been, um, I've been a fan of comics since I was, you know, I think I was seven when I bought my first, uh, six or seven when I got my first comic. Um, mm -hmm. actually my first, I could tell you this story. My, Mar my first Marvel comic was the introduction of the green goblin. Ooh. And, uh, 
I bought it for my brother who was, he was very sick with a fever at the time. So he was, and in those days, like we're talking early sixties, um, the treatment for fever was, was I guess aspirin and then cold hey, bath and comics <laughs> and com- yeah, well, that, that was my contribution to the medical profession. Um, and, uh, uh, he, uh, he had to take these cold baths to draw, bring the fever down and then uh, and then rest a lot so there was he was he was, he was not, not a happy little guy and and uh, so i went and bought him this comic it was actually it wasn't actually the first it wasn't actually the comic that introduced green goblin it was the first marvel collector's item classics that reprinted that but it was in line with what we're talking about the uh, the first encounter between spider-man and the hulk and uh, uh beautiful old steve ditko comic mm. uh, and that was that was really the thing that kind of hooked me. I said, okay, I really love this stuff. I really love these comics. And I've loved them all my life. Um, and then, but of course, being a child of the 60s, 70s, comics were things that you were supposed to put aside as, a, you know, they were the childish things. So I kind of went through an eclipse with comics and then sort of came back to them later in my life and started reading them all over again. And then uh, at one point, dropped a code word, a comic code word to a colleague of mine in a department meeting. And we knew we had both been lovers of the game, of the genre. And uh, (laughs) we decided that it was time that we should start teaching comics and graphic novels as literature. First course I taught, comics as literature. We still had to make that case. Um, And and we've been teaching it ever since. I've spoken at the San Diego Comic-Con um the uh comic expos here uh I've written several essays um the latest in uh, an anthology by anna papard uh, called super sex uh, about essays on sexuality in comic books um and i've been you know it's been a tremendously wonderful story to uh to have been to have ended up meeting people like you know chris claremont and and um neil gaiman um, Adam West, um, all through that kind of study. Um, my brother came down with, with, uh, COVID. It was really rough. And, uh, so I sent him, um, uh, Marvel true believers reprint of that very green goblin. Introductory. Oh, that's nice. And he, he wrote me back and he said, I feel cold baths and better. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Well, I want to add to Richard that uh, we have Patty Mascaro, who's a friend of the show, to uh, thank for bringing you on. Uh, she recommended you to us. Um, so she was a colleague of yours from Mount Royal University. She is. She's a wonderful friend and um, and uh, godmother to um, to my son. So, oh, uh, well. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love Patty and, and I thank her very much for introducing me to you too seems like uh, you have a dream job, I think, in the the minds of a lot of our listeners. They would think that you have a dream job. But uh, certainly not everyone reads comics. And I grew up uh, in Australia, and Mm -hmm. my father would buy comics for me, but usually Archie Comics and Betty and Victoria, Veronica, rather, Mm -hmm. um, and also British comedy stuff. So I'm not sure if you'd be familiar with comic books like Viz and Whizzer and Chips. I think some Mm -hmm. of those are defunct now, but going back to the – 80s and 90s mm-hmm. uh, but just to begin with if you, we can get a definition for comics what are comics and where do they come from <laughs> well I, I, 
I mean, we could do the entire podcast on that. Uh, <laughs> sure. Because, I mean, people have been debating this for a long time. If you think of comics in, if we take comics from the sort of 18, late 1800s as the defining point, um, then you've got an art form in which both the words and the pictures are essential to the telling of the whole story. Then you've got the 1800s onwards. I I think they go and I mean Scott McCloud's book Understanding Comics, you know, he sort of says, okay, that's the def that is a worthwhile definition because it at least pinpoints a time. Um, but he goes and I pretty well anyone who thinks you know sc the scholars on this are always debating because you look at you know cave paintings, petroglyphs, hieroglyphs. Um, where there is a pictogram or a picture or a painting that is also a key point in storytelling. And in, in some sense, you know, I'm going to be cheeky and just go, OK, they started about 17,000 years ago in the Lascaux Caves, where you've got these wonderful, wonderful paintings of of animals, people, different different kinds of animals, different scenes. And they were used by storytellers as the fixed points or the or the or the things to point to while they were telling stories to the other members of the group. And because there was no writing, it was impossible for there to be a comic in the sort of 19th century sense. But there there had to be a storyteller. So you've got the Lascaux cave paintings, you've got the petroglyphs, you've got writing on stone out here um, in Alberta, um, where the text, what we would call a text, was provided by a human being. But that human being needed the pictures to tell the story and the stories needed the human being for the story to be told. So on one sense, I mean, to take it to that level, on one sense, it's, it's, it's comics Stories and pictures essential to the telling of a story, story to the essential that being essential to the unity of the community. Comics invented us. That's interesting. I trying to think of when I first heard this argument, but it would have been when I was probably in high school in the 80s. There was the discussion about the differences between a comic and a graphic novel mm. and mm -hmm. and and. That was around the same time we started to see some of the more ambitious comics works. Um, this is right around the time. I guess The Watchmen was coming out around the time I was a senior, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and so th it was a transformation from what I think people thought of as sort of that's just kid stuff and and then like turning it into a form of literature and obviously yeah. that's a, that I'm not really sure. I, even as a person, I, I, I come from an English major background, but I, I, even I'm not quite sure exactly what constitutes literature, which these are all, I guess, arbitrary designations in some ways, you know, but like, what, what do you see as being that sort of difference between a comic and a graphic novel? Is it just the binding is, or is it the, the mer is there a meritocracy of content involved here? Like what? <laughs> well, well, I'm on one level, I mean, Will Eisner um, is largely regarded as the person who coined the term graphic novel. And he was a comic book artist or a comic artist um, in the forties, fifties, one, one of the, one of the 
pioneering figures of the of the form. Uh, his his comic was known as it was called the Spirit, and he was a crime fighter who everyone thought was dead, um, but wasn't. I mean, that whole returning to the from the dead, we will return to that. But it's uh, it's it's a it seems to be a very key element to comic literature. Um, but he had this character called the Spirit, and he wanted to he. He saw what was going on in North America as a degradation of the comic form, which he loved and he proved over and over again was extremely valuable because um, uh, he was the one who did the um, instruction manuals for uh, soldiers in World War II. Remember, the level of literacy was not very high. And um, and and so in instruction manuals on how to assemble a field rifle, how to you know, fix a Jeep, how to take care of yourself, proper hygiene. All of that was Eisner's work to turn very boring manuals into accessible writing for people whose literacy levels were varied. Um, hugely successful. Soldiers who were trained with Eisner's comics were far better at what they did than soldiers who were trying to train through pure text. So Eisner could see the value of the comic and he could see other cultures valued comics more than they did in North America for various reasons. Um, so he produced what what most people regard as the first graphic novel, which is called A Contract with God. And it's actually four interlinked stories that are told around an apartment, tenement apartment in the lower um, uh, east side of Manhattan. Um, uh, on what's called Dropsy Avenue. Uh, and they are stories of the tenement dwellers, the immigrants to to New York. And most they were, they were, in fact, centered around the life of Jewish immigrants in New York. And Contract with God was Eisner's way of actually coping with the death of his own daughter, his young young daughter, by challenging the whole concept of what we owe God and God owes us. It's a fabulous, fabulous piece of work. And he wanted to get it into adult hands. So he knew that big, bigger comic wasn't going to do any better than thin comics, you know, would do to get it into Barnes and Noble. So he coined the phrase uh, graphic novel as a pitch to say, this is a, it's not a comic, it's a graphic novel. And they gave, gave it a chance. It opened up the door for adults to start reading comics again. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. And it um, effectively what I think is that comics are sequential. That is, if you pick up an issue of Superman, you know there's going to be another 25, 30, 40, and apparently you know, I think there's a thousand issues of Superman. Superman's story never ends. Whereas a graphic novel is bound by time and space, the way that we and other novels are bound by time and space, where there's a beginning and an end. So there's a lot of things that you can do in a graphic novel that you really can't do in a property like Spider-Man, um, Wonder Woman, etc., because they rely on continuous publication. Right? They never actually, they never actually um, have a beginning or an end. They just exist in a contemporaneous present all the time. Charlie Brown never ages right? um superman never ages whereas in a graphic novel you'll see someone go through the transformation that a character does in a text novel so that's would you that's sort of like a myth space right i mean like 
there's not so much in our mythic stories about these you know heroes we you know zeus is getting old you know zeus from yeah. you know i'm getting too old for this crap you know like that that's not <laughs> mm-hmm. there's a, there's a, there's an a, an, an ever present like that seems to be like the home of a lot of these kind of mythic um type characters and i i think they, yeah. that falls in there i guess right yeah they they never actually none of these characters age they just either are like zeus no longer believed in or you know like you know, so many comic book characters from the from the fifties onwards, they just get canceled. <laughs> well, yeah, a, a, a quick follow up. The and I haven't really thought about this much until just now, which is probably me just being short sighted. But the when I think about the history of comics, a lot of it, uh, you know, comes out of New York and largely um, influenced by a lot of important creators were Jewish in their culture, if not religion. Uh, and I'm thinking here about um, Superman and a lot of the early artists that were, you know, doing some of the influential stuff that I really liked. But um, and uh, Spiegelman uh, for Mouse, but that's not old, but that's in, that's the '80s. But um, you know, um, Eisner. I mean, but so so I, it's obviously not everyone in comics at the time. Uh, came from that background but it's like if i remember correctly a lot of this came out of like people working out of like the fabric district or something like that that new york jewish influence seems really powerful but obviously that's american comics america's not the only place where these were being created are there other places other cultural influences that are as powerful or am i reading that correctly that that is really a, a really strong influence there no, it is it is a very strong influence. And if you look at, I mean, the New the New York Lower East Side, there were a quarter of a million people living there um, in these tenements, and and you know a lot of them were Jewish emigres from persecution in Europe. Um, they weren't solely Jewish, of course, but there were a lot of them. A lot, a lot of that was high proportion, very concentrated. And what you get is Broadway um comic books and and there's a huge influence of course those who made who went out to the west coast um in hollywood um because you know you know the the jewish the jewish identity you know is is largely formed around storytelling right held together by stories um you know the the people of the book um is is a name they give themselves and so what is happening there is um, it's diasporic. A lot of it is diasporic literature. It's it's about people being emigres and trying to fit into a new planet. Like Superman is, um, you know, his Jerusalem is Krypton. It's destroyed. It's gone. Right. Remember, at this time, we're talking about the 1930s and. Uh, and a lot of the Jewish homelands, a lot of places they live are gone or denied them. And they're trying to live in this new place, trying to find a new identity, a new, a, a preserve an identity that's continuous with the past and yet forge an identity that's, that's congruent and, 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 you know, can live within the future. And it's, you know, all of these things are about people gathering together and telling stories, selling, singing songs. It's all, uh 
it, at least in terms of, of, of Broadway or shows, it's all derived from the way in which they preserve their community through story. Um, and, you know, there it's not exclusive to Jewish emigres in New York, but it is certainly an element of what's going on there. And I mean, we if we were doing a podcast on Superman, for example, I would go down all the list of his characteristics of what it meant to be who you were and who you had to be, who you were to be continuous with the past, Superman's Kal-El, and who you need to be to be congruent, to fit within the future, fit within the present, so he's Clark Kent, um, and how to fit in with that new world, consistent with the principles of your homeland that no longer exists. It, it, there's a lot of really lovely layering going on in the in these stories and they are very they're cheap to make that you know you're, you're dealing with people who don't have a lot of resources but they do have a desire to to read and tell each other things and make stuff up that you know navigates the world so fascinating <laughs> thank you <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna say, I mean, Japanese comics come from a very different set of origin. I mean, we could do another, we could do a world tour um, to talk about different, you know, why there's different sensibilities in comics. And now the comics have become far more cosmopolitan. You can see these different influences um, coming in and, and, and shaping the sort of continuous production of the comic now. So I think we should move on to talk about uh, comic book monsters as the, the topic that we wanted to to treat in this episode. And uh, I know that we're talking about so many different kinds of comics uh, within that, that genre, mm. but who are the monsters in comic books? You know, what is a monster according to comic books? Are we talking about supervillains or are we talking about uh, cryptids? I, th I think, I mean, the... I think to 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 see how monsters appear in and again, if I can just confine it for a sec to the sort of North American comic, um, that the comic monsters begin to appear in comic books after they appear in movies. Okay. So either well, sort of two sources: movies and text literature. So you've right. got two sort of main sources for the first appearances of monster comics in North America in the sort of 40s, right? Late, late 30s, early 40s. And so you've got the literary monsters like Dracula and Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster. And then you've got, uh, you've got the folktale monsters who you made it into movies through like Wolfman and then a version of Dracula uh, the mummy, um, which becomes really, really impressive and important when they're discovering, you know, uncovering, you know, they're, they're sort of rediscovering Egypt. Um, uh, and then uh, things like, uh, you know, the creature, Godzilla, King Kong, um, that migrate from the cinema into comics. And the comics owed a lot of their early popularity to, to the movies as a source, as source material. Um, I mean, in fact, the comic book is a sort of like the third is, is the, you know, it's the child of the syndicated comic in the newspapers, 
Um, and that's where even Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster wanted to get their first Superman story was into the m- newspapers. They didn't even know what a comic book was. Um, that comes later. But but the movies were the big were the big fuel for um, monster comics. Um, and then once those start to show up, then you get monsters appearing um, in uh not just their own comics uh but in uh in this the burgeoning superhero stuff from the late 30s onwards where this the monster becomes what the superhero has to fight right dick tracy's you know villains are a lot of them borderline on monsters like they they, at least visually that they Mm -hmm. uh and I, i always thought that was intriguing because i didn't know exactly like i didn't know why like it never made like it was weird to me because i mean in a superhero comic it makes perfect sense that well there's superheroes there's going to be super villains otherwise it's just going to be very one-sided i mean if you've ever watched the old tv uh superman with with just a few exceptions he's largely just fighting gangsters and it's really yeah. kind of like it's just it, he's well he, even as superman it's a little it's a little too easy right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, but, uh, but, but they have like you know there are a lot of genres within comics. You know, there's Western comics and horror comics, and you know, like sort of noir crime comics and and, and romance comics. And obviously, you could go on much further than I could with that. But uh, I, I do you do you get a feel for did the monsters mostly show up in horror comics first, or did they show up all over the place, or like where where do they first begin? In your estimation, I mean, and we're putting you on the spot here because I know we're talking in sort of broad terms. And I guess specifically, I'm not asking you to like, I need you to be declaring this so I can get it on Wikipedia. I just <laughs> roughly, I'd be revised and edited within 24 hours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think the monsters, I guess it, we come back. I mean, you're right, there are some really ugly, distorted characters. Uh, you know, Dick Tracy, prune face and flat top and and those characters, um, certainly the Joker in Batman. Uh, these are distorted or disfigured human beings or just ugly human beings um, because comics is a visual language. Right. So you've got to have something to say this character is different from this character. Um, and the invention of costumes was a big favor. Right. You don't really have to care about what they look like. They just are all in red or have a big cape um (laughs) but i i you know i i keep coming back to you know what what does the what a monster is is dependent on what it represents and you know if you go back to again i'm going to go slip back to the mythology right where where indeed there's some monsters like the hydra the you know the nemean lion the griffins you know uh the gorgons these are these were monsters in greek mythology um, the golem, who was either a monster or a savior, depending on which story you read in the in the in the Jewish uh, mythology, um, and it's it, you know etc. They they take from everywhere. Um, those monsters, I well no golem is different, but um, but say Hydra, the Hydra out of the swamps of Lernia is the creature from the Black Lagoon. it's just it's another sort of force of nature in animal form against which the hero is pitted 
to you know ensure their own survival or the survival of an innocent person effectively it's the it's animal nature versus humans and and i see those monsters as representative of the forces that would consume us because we were really afraid of you know mastodons and snakes and stuff they, they were the overpowering they were the force with which we had to contend or they were representatives of natural forces with which we had to contend right there was a time when animals were our like worst enemy right um so uh those monsters have that represent they represent that so they're largely just pure forces i i think that that changes with frankenstein where um mary shelley creates a creature whom everyone else sees as a monster but who is actually very refined very educated very sensitive only wants to be loved but is turned into a vicious creature by our own reaction to his ugliness his otherness so the monster goes from being this a, a creature that has no relationship to us is indifferent to us we're just prey right? or an annoyance to something that wanted to be along with us but was outcast and and from then on the monster the 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 true monsters and i think the hulk is like that kind of a character um the thing from the fantastic four um even you know venom or or blockbuster or killer croc or you just you know, keep rolling them out please excuse this brief editorial interruption at this point in the conversation we got into a discussion about the etymology of the word monster which i'm editing here for clarity there seems to be a general consensus that the word monster comes from the latin word monstrum which has its roots in the idea of a warning monsters often literally monstrous births were considered to be omens or warnings but many other words with similar roots have been tied to the word monster through both literal etymology such as the word demonstrate and also through folk etymology and our conversation included a discussion of the word monarchy which comes from the roots mono meaning one and archon meaning leader and this provides deep poetic connections with the power of monsters as well as their innate loneliness. And with that clarification, we return you to this conversation already in progress. The monster is always the only one of its kind, constantly looking for another of its kind. Um, and and in, in the end sort of turns to us and we reject it. Uh, that the psychological monster, the social monster. Wait, rise are, are, are you after. saying that the Frankenstein monster was the first incel? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> he was looking for a bride. He, he got one. He almost got one. <laughs> he got close. He got close. Right. <laughs> Want to be loved. 
<laughs> he did though, right? I, no, yeah, I mean, he did. He did. He wanted a companionship. He wanted to be human, or he he wanted the companionship of like minds, and you know, and he was in some ways smarter and kinder until pushed, and then things. Yeah, and I think everybody. If you compare that to say Eric the 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 villain from uh, the Phantom of the Opera who is hideous but is also internally a monster you don't really there's not much sympathy for Eric he's a really bad character yeah, yeah. and and yeah he is and I mean he's and again so he's he's like the predecessor for characters like Two Face and the Joker you know who's driven mad by his own disfigurement um um but he also yeah and he knows that um no one's going to accept him like he's he sort of preemptorily just realizes what he is that's interesting because he's surrounded by the best music in the world eric is yeah and yet it has no effect on him well he he seems fond of christine i mean you know (laughs) right yeah he, he longs for someone He's driven, but again, they're all driven by their aloneness, right? Like they're all, they're all driven. Oh, and I bet that never rang true for any comic book kid reading alone at home. You know, oh, that, oh I'm, I'm having flashbacks. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's, well, yeah, really. No wonder we all love them. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the monster, I mean, that's, you know, it's our show, is monsters, and we, we use them as a springboard to talk about science and culture and all kinds of things. But ultimately, I think, you know, you're right. One of the reasons we often love monsters, when they're not, I mean, even things like Godzilla, which is, you know, maybe he's a force of nature, I don't know, but, like, it's easy to feel sympathy across those stories because we see the humanity in even in the monstrous, and loneliness is such a, a visceral, you know, emotion. is so powerful to to yeah. to have, you know, that yearning for companionship and an equal mind and all that sort of thing. And you know, sometimes to relate to that, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Chinwag Pod and Wagon. 
And, and I think too, the, the other element there is that with a character like Godzilla um, or, you know, the Hulk, um, monster still does. It's not like we're, com we're completely um, unjustified in our, in our reaction to the monster because you know, these monsters, uh, because these monsters are created for us. They're all fictional characters, but they're all created for us to embody something we are terrified of. And in the case of Godzilla, it's nuclear war. Because um, he, he's he's created by the atom bomb, right? And and then he becomes the destruction of the atom bomb, personified as a lizard, right? And and the Hulk is created by an atomic explosion, and then and rage, um, and a human rage that's unleashed because of the power of the atom. So you do get to see. You still do. You, I don't think you ever completely lose the fact that these are forces of nature given some sort of animal or human form. So it seems over the past couple of decades that comics have become recognized as a form of literature uh, mm. more and more. And how has the role of monsters in that medium changed over time? Um, well, I think there's a great deal more sympathy for the monstrous figure in, uh, uh, certainly in comics. Um, you know, in the comics code, it, you know, in the late late fifties, right? They said you can't have any sympathy for the villain. Like it's actually in code. Right? <laughs> um, um, they broke that pretty quickly. I think the first the first character who broke that in Marvel, anyway, in this that was from nineteen sixty when they reintroduced the superhero. When Marvel did, DC did a few years earlier. Uh, um, was the Mole Man, who was he looked like a mole, like he was just a. a Molish kind of person and the, the you know, very very nearsighted the whole bit um and he does he lives in the in the underneath the earth because he can't because people can't he can't stand the reaction that he gets to human being or the, the ordinary people give him sort of like the penguin and right? the penguin with the mm -hmm. um um but he we, we were given a story with which we had sympathy because we all know what it like it feels like to be ridiculed for something that's not our fault. Um and more and more, you know, I see these characters, you know, who are either um who are either true monsters in the sense that they are they're distorted shapes like Venom, um uh who's got like three movies now, um or the thing um even they're they're even letting Martian Manhunter be more monstrous in appearance. Right? They they're letting him be more Martian, um, uh, again, etc. Um, but they're giving they're, they're more figures of sympathy than they were figures of fear. And I mean now they're more hero they're they're heroes, right? Mm -hmm. So they've gone from being that which the hero must destroy in order to be the hero to, you know, the hero itself, himself, herself, who has to actually hmm, has to show us how to live with their own aloneness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Every time I think about the thing, I think about the, the there's an indie comic called Concrete. Oh yeah, uh, and I, it, it's it's so interesting because it could be a superhero comic, but it's largely just a guy who's suddenly stuck into a body of stone, 
and having like uh, trying to live a normal life and it's just uh, it's I, I it's so heart touching in some ways <laughs> and I, but but you know that's true for the thing as well the the Ben Graham character um I mean just you know it's he's super tough he's super strong but can he feel it when you touch him his you know he, he's no it, it, so he's got this he's kind of blocked off from the world of the senses in some ways you know and so mm-hmm. and he also sees himself as hideous so he ends up dating a blind girl which sort of resolves some of the anyway they, they, we don't need to re- revisit uh, his complicated story <laughs> anyway but I, I i do i i think about this all the time about uh you you just barely mentioned it but the this comics code and the 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 way comics have, have been viewed over time like for example um you know i i'm a big fan of ec comics and i'm actually mm-hmm. rereading very slowly because I have too many things on my to-do list, but I'm reading my way through Tales from the Crypt. Um, and there's not actually that many issues of them, but it, um, and those largely came out of, there a lot of that material is just repurposed stuff that's in the public domain and stuff that's not technically in the public domain. So they, you know, scratch the serial numbers off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they did a lot of that. They did, they did a lot, lot of that. that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I really, yeah. I mean, the, it, it caused a lot of outrage and, but that outrage never, even though the comics code stuff happened, and I'd like you to talk about that a little bit. But I remember one of my first comics um, that I bought. Uh, they were actually, I can almost it was related to a doctor's visit. The doctor's office was right next to a little drugstore, and I went from the doctor's office over to the drugstore with a couple of bucks that I had, and I bought um, a Spider-Man comic book and a UFO comic book, and I was very excited about both. Uh, the UFO one was the Gold Key series; those were amazing. Um, I love those, yeah. And yeah. the comic book was Spider-Man meets Ghost Rider. And, oh my gosh, uh, my mom caught glimpse of, of Ghost Rider and his Hellfire. And, wow, Uh-oh. wow, that <laughs> comic book did not make it. Uh, <laughs> oh. so, I don't know how that did turned out. Did you get out. to read it at no, all? No, no, no. I got oh. to watch my dollar go in the trash can. So, Ooh. yeah. So, anyway. um but the point is, people have a lot of moral judgments about comics. I imagine the mm. monsters don't help that. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how the sort of moral panic around comic books happened and what that led to code-wise? For sure. That, um, I mean, that is known as the dark ages, you know, among the com- among comic people who like to, you know, mark eras. Um, effectively, after the end of this, like the second, prior to Second World War, Second World War time, you've got Captain America, Superman, Batman, Justice Society. You've got you've got a, a burgeoning of comics. Um, it's called the, but you've also got true crime comics, um, creepy tales, weird tales. Like all of these comics are being produced. Comics are being produced by the thousands um, because after you get the success of Superman, uh, suddenly comics go from being small business to big business. And it's known as the golden age because the artists and the writers could do whatever they wanted. Like whatever you can imagine, draw that. So you, you've got this wide range of comics, extraordinarily wide variety in terms of quality. Um, um, but there's really no moral. (laughs) There's all, I don't, there's almost no morality, right? There's just, everybody just told the stories they wanted to tell, which is the way in which, you know, literature kind of works, right? That it's at its maximum level of freedom, you can tell the story you want to tell. And so they did that. But after the war is over, um, 
Well, two things happened. One is after the war is over, and I, I'm kind of sorry, I may have conflated this a bit here. After the war is over, a lot of comics faded away just because people weren't interested in them anymore. Um, but partly, and I've heard this, I've, I've read this, I, I'm not sure how deeply sort of, it, I'm not sure how to think about it yet, but let's put it this way, that the comics, because they're instantaneous, like they come out every month um, or every week or two month, two weeks, they are responding very, very quickly to what the audience wants and what the audience will um, will reject. Um, you get comic companies just springing up, going for four weeks and disappearing. And some people argue that the comics became more grotesque, more criminal. The crimes became more exaggerated. The bloodshed was more uh, pronounced uh, because a lot of people came back. A lot of the comic readers, i.e. American servicemen, um, because they've been trained to read comics, because they were trained as soldiers through comics. Um, they came back and they wanted they wanted to see a, a they wanted to they, they wanted from their entertainment something that would connect with their experience. And, you know, people coming back from war, you know, bloodshed doesn't necessarily isn't the I can't look at this. I, there There is this sense that the world is a lot tougher. So comic books got tougher. Now, because comic books are, this is what David Lloyd, the guy who drew V for Vendetta, he told me when I was at a Comic-Con, he said, the reason comic books are disparaged is because children can make them. Um, anyone with a pencil can make a comic. And, you know, I would add, because children can read them. Children can read much more sophisticated stories in comic book form than they can in text form. So they can be very, very influential at an early age. So when you get these comics that are, drawn by adults and they are accessible to children, then you've got all the makings of the moral panic. And what was happening in the 50s in America um, was a lot. It, it was causing a lot. There was a huge social disruption. And so Red Book, the magazine, started to produce a series of articles by Frederick Wortham, the psychologist, about the dangers of comic books uh, uh, as affecting children. And Wortham played very fast and loose with his clinical experience. This is very clear. But he would he would argue that the, the delinquents, to use that term, the delinquents that he studied, that he was working with and that he was studying to figure out what was going on, they all read comics. So comics were a contributor to delinquency. So he reread comics as promoting violence, promoting drug use, promoting co uh, crime, promoting homosexuality, promoting communism, promoting all the things that America was terrified of. Um, so there was a right alongside the same inquiry into Hollywood films. They were busy looking at comic books. And in order to save themselves, those comics that couldn't save themselves, like the EC line, they, there were no more creepy horror comics, no more people, you know, the dead eating the living, all that stuff. None of that. They either got right out of the comic book business. Um, uh, the Gaines, uh, Max Gaines got out and formed Mad Magazine because magazines were different than comic books. Um, some of them just shut up 
house, they closed house. Um, lots of people were fired. Lots of people wanted to advertising other things that they could use their talents for. And a thin, like thin, the thin, the narrowly defined topics of comics where we kept comics alive. And and the, there were three or four, I mean, just a, the three or four top ones were romance comics. They invented the romance comic in order to save themselves, to keep publishing. The Western, space comics, um, sanitized space comics, of course, um, and monster comics. Because monsters, the mo if you look at the way the monsters went in comics during that period after, oh, sorry, the comics business looked at what was happening in the movie business and the movie business was governed ended up being governed by what was known as the Hayes code h-a-y-e-s and Hayes code says you can't show this you can't show that you can't show this so movies became very confined comics went you don't have to give us a Hayes code we'll do it ourselves so they invented the comics code and so all the comics had to pass this code which said things like evil can't win, um, no sympathy for, um, no sympathy for the devil. Um, people, characters couldn't be too ugly <laughs> to designate themselves as villains or heroes. Um, no sex, of course, no drug use. Um, you know, it's, you know, no grotesqueries, no mutilation, no showing of any sexualized parts of the human body, all that stuff. So monsters showed up as part of the lifeline of comics. And you look at the comic and you look at the monsters during this period. So we're looking at the sort of 50s, 1950s. They're very cute. Um, one of them was Groot. Uh, the living tree. Right? <laughs> um, but you get Groot, Goom. Fin Fang Boom. You get these. You get these wordplay, horrific but not really horrific kind of monsters, um, who are playing out these fantasy stories because they were kind of they were they they passed the code. They were safe. So on on one level, you know the you know the comedic possibility of the monster. And you see that in characters like uh, Big Hero 6, the Pixar character, like that big balloon, looks like the Pillsbury Doughboy. Doe yeah, my son yeah. loves that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's fun. Ba as all Baymax, that. right? I... Yeah, that's right. That's his name. Um, um, or, or even the Pillsbury Doughboy in Ghostbusters, right? You get these cute and cuddly kind of monsters um, where, you know, they become sort of because they're so different from human beings, they become the vehicles for these, for the, for the, for those stories to be told with their moral lessons and their, you know, requisite suspense, but not horror, um, that pass the code. It's the call of cute Thulu. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. So I've never heard of, uh... Uh, romance comics and so if you had the code with no sex were these just kind of pg-13 oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no sex it's married <laughs> yeah, it, it's all teenage longing um you know oh i want to be oh it's there and they were they were huge like when it, mm. in 
this is part of the comics history that becomes you know really interesting for people who want to study gender in comics is that you know effectively the comics realized the comics corporations realized that they couldn't sell to their old cohort so they had to expand who they were selling to so instead of just boys they were sell they started to sell to girls Right. It's like Biddy and Veronica then with the Archie comics that my dad would get me. That's right. They were <laughs> that's right. And yeah. and they were and they were they got very I mean there were there was a lot of sexual tension. It was all sexual tension of the sort of grade eleven level, right? right. Uh, <laughs> um nobody actually did anything, or if they did anything, it was completely off stage or implied. Um, <laughs> but they would sell young romance would sell half a million comics a month. I, wow. they, they had a huge audience. Um, but once the once the code started to loosen and DC started to reintroduce the characters who had been sort of effectively sidelined by poor either poor sales or the code or both, they downplayed those comics. They started to disappear again. There, there are two other things here to say. One, one is that the funny animal comic starts to really take off um, uh, during this period. Um, Disney, Looney Tunes, they all were reintroducing these characters and they were, they were not monsters, Tasmanian devil, maybe, you know, but they weren't, they, they weren't monsters in that sense, but they were non-human representations of human characteristics. Um, and they were very acceptable. Everyone loves Donald Duck and Scrooge McDuck and, and all those characters. Um, so that was a big market for comics during this period. Um, and in a kind of way, monsters were they, they had that sort of alliance with the cartoon characters more than they did with their old movie predecessors. Could you talk a little about this transition from this period where we had the Tencent menace and, and this, you know, this comics code scare and the moral panic to the world we are in now where basically the Marvel Cinematic Universe rules the box office and like everything's a comic book movie like how mm. that, that's an incredible transition in what seems like a pretty short amount of time I mean yeah I mean I say it's a short amount of time it's my lifetime is what it is <laughs> <laughs> <It's like laughs> Very short. when you think about right where Stan Lee is writing Spider-Man and Fantastic Four in 19 19- you know, sort of 1960 to in the early 60s, and he won't even tell people what his job is. Um, to he's you know he was the sort of cameo king of Hollywood. Um, it's it is stunning. It is really stunning. I mean, I know a lot of old comic book fans like me who resent all of it. Right? They never understood because once comics became very popular, then what was important about being a comic reader started to diminish. Because you were this exclusive group of people who were getting something that no one else got. Um, and now everyone gets it. So there's well, that, that we have the same feeling in the IT world for people who still know how to pop open a terminal and type, you know, commands. It's like, oh, you graphics people with your fancy interfaces, you know, <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's yeah, there is that 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 sort of. I've got a special knowledge and, and now it's become popular and you know, they're not mm -hmm. real fans. And that, that happens all the, that, mm -hmm. I don't, there's that's something, there was an elitism or something there. Yeah. 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 Well, there is something about, you know, and again, I mean, it's back to, back to monsters, you know, monsters do cling to their identity, right? They, 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 you know, I don't know whether you saw the, the latest uh, Spider-Man picture, right? Where, 
where Peter Parker decides that the way to save Dr. Octopus and the the lizard and the Sandman, they're kind of monstrous characters, right? The, the lizard is the creature. Or, 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 spoiler warning, I, I suspect. Spoiler warning. <laughs> oh, all right. I'm not going to say or not. I mean, one. although it's made so much money, you might assume everyone's already seen it twice because, good Lord, that movie has done well. <laughs> it's done very well. Done but go ahead. Well. You can finish your thought. It, it effectively <laughs> says, and I can, I, there's nothing wrong. I, I won't say how it all ends or anything, but, but effectively... Um, instead of fighting them, uh, Peter Parker decides to cure them, right? So, because they're all driven, like Dr. Octopus is driven the, in the movies, he's driven mad by the accident that fuses his body with these artificial limbs. Again, another primal fear, right? The loss of integrity of the body and, mm-hmm. and being taken over by technology. The lizard is a human being transformed into this, lizard right um and in the uh in both the comics and i think in the movie i'm pretty sure is because he's lost his arm and he's trying to find a way to regenerate his own arm his own human arm by using lizard dna and of course this is a huge fear we all have that our dna will be corrupted and will turn into monsters uh sandman is a, a human being who's turned into this pile of of um animated sand um and i well in the comics it was originally by an atomic accident i don't remember why it happened in the movies uh in the Raimi movie i'm pretty sure he was in a nuclear accident as well it's one of the things it's yeah so okay okay so um spider-man the the spectacular spider-man comic book series then it was the it was the result of an attempt to make an invulnerable human being but um they're all monsters right and so he decides he's going to cure them and they resist. Right? They don't want to be cured. Right? <laughs> that, that, so they have this, they have this debate, which we all have, right? In terms of our individuality, ultimately in terms of our individuality, we all have to decide whether what, what makes us who we are is a gift or a curse. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that gets debated in that particular film. And I think that's part of where monsters are going is that, you know, are they, in fact, you know, figures we should fear or are they models for how we should actually be about our own individuality? Oh, this is the same debate I have about puns all the time. You know, is, <laughs> is it a power? Is it a curse? It's <laughs> exactly. So anyway, the, uh, you asked, the other question you asked, how did the, how did the Marvel Cinematic Universe be, you know, rule the world now? I mean, partly, you know, the, the, the sort of easiest answer to make is now the cinematic audience, now the uh, movie audiences are people like us who've been raised reading comics. And at last, you know, we can see our heroes on screen know up with the other fantasy figures that movies and and you know figures whose stories provide a spectacle right which is what movies have become more than anything like it is about the spectacle go to the go to the movies and be filled with awe and wonder um those storylines are completely designed for that to happen um so partly it's you know the the movies change because the audience does um, but I think there's something more about it. I think there's something, or at least something extra you can say, right? Because, you know, comic books have been making it into, uh, into po- other elements of popular culture almost since the beginning. 
like the Fleischer Superman pictures, um, they appear two years after Superman um, hits the hits the stands. Um, the Batman television series uh, arrives in 1966, actually right about the time that the Batman comics are starting to fade away because they're so code suppressed that the Dark Knight of Gotham has become a clown, right? Um, and and even his fans don't want to see him anymore. Um, the television show is what revives that character. Um, the Tim Burton Batman and the um, the early X-Men pictures, 1989, 1990s, you know, they are starting to, they're, they're, they've been doing that now. 1990 is 30 years ago. So they, th- this, this has been happening in movies, the serial, like the, the Fleischer comics cartoons were shown before the major motion pictures. Radio took these characters on like mad. You know, here's a, here's a bit of trivia. Batman and Superman first meet on radio. Um, wow. Interesting. There you go. Were they friends? Kryptonite. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they were friends. They were friends on radio. Kryptonite first appears on radio. Superman flies first in the cartoons. Uh, so these, char- these, these characters have been going back and forth between their print form and their other media forms almost since the beginning. Yeah, that's uh, okay. That's that's fascinating too because I, I see that kind of looping cultural interchange a lot around monsters in folklore, uh, mm-hmm. monsters as people actually report seeing them, and monsters in movies. And I, I've I've come to think about it as like this loop of of inner you know elements being passed back and forth, back and forth. You know, the stories people see provide a cultural template for the things that they can experience which in turn informs the fiction and the folklore and the kinds of experiences people have and yeah. I've, I've i started calling it a perpetual notion machine because it's, <laughs> it's just this constant loop and interchange and it just it seems to be we're driven by stories we we live our lives in stories we have our we biographize in stories like that's just that's how we experience the world is through stories and so um yeah that makes perfect sense to me mm-hmm. yeah Thank you. I, and I, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to quote you on the perpetual notion. Machine. Oh, you should. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I will. But, but so now okay, I'm going to get on my <laughs> I'm going to get my own hobby horse here. Right. Because, uh, you know, I, I have my own theory. This is one of those things that you get to do every so often. Cool, um, yeah. Yeah. Is is that what what those of us who love comics um never really felt you know during during our own childhoods or like you say the your mom who throws away you know ghost rider meets spider-man um uh was we felt disdain for a form of art we loved and when it started to be treated with some respect in in the shows that we all mentioned like i just did about you know, these characters, there was plenty of shows that were made that have no respect for the characters at all. But when we started to see um, the respect for the characters or respect for their possibility, um, we were really happy, really happy to see that. But what we really wanted to see, what, we, what, it, what I think we really wanted to blend was our awe of things that were in already in the movies. Right? space movies and westerns and stuff big broad vistas of space and time 
We wanted to see our awe that we saw in those forms with the awe we felt for the characters that we were reading in comic books. And comic book characters are all small. Right? The comic book is something a child can hold in their hands. So, but in our imagination, they're huge. So they're safe because they're tiny, but they're awesome, right? Because they hold this imaginative field for us. And we go to the movies to feel about those characters and their stories the way we felt as children. Only this time, they really are bigger than us. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, also, I mean, I, you know, things like the technology advancing to the point that we can actually see a Jack Kirby scene brought to life and it looks decent. It doesn't look good. Yeah, yeah. that is I'm so excited about the new Doctor Strange movie. Oh, my God. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you there. <laughs> I, 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 I The comic movies are popular, but I know that the industry's had to struggle some with this conversion of everybody reading things digitally uh do you have a sense of two things i guess one is how how is the comics business doing today and where do you think the role of monsters in the industry is heading okay um the comic you I mean the comic stores are still there they're not as many as they used to be the comics are still being produced not as many as they used to be um but and that's because partly it's digital so you don't have to buy any of that stuff uh but in you know the answer to how the business is doing effectively i mean as much as the comics as comic companies dc and marvel and and uh image and you know etc have to you know make make the make a profit or make themselves at least survive they don't have to do as much as they did anymore right dc is owned by warner time warner uh marvel is owned by disney um and effectively if you look at the budget the, the you look at the uh, the budget breakdowns for the the corporations for which you know which own all these things marvel and dc particularly i'm not sure of all the other in relationships there but marvel and dc are are research and development like they they are budget lines in their parent companies uh, like a like any department so oh, they they only have to make characters who are popular enough for the main company to say that's interesting i might make a movie out of that one uh so they don't have to be self-supporting anymore um any but there's they have to be self-supporting in the way in which the department of you know the 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 appliance department in you know uh what in walmart has to show that it's selling enough appliances to warrant Walmart to keep putting appliances in there or the boots. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Do they sell appliances at Walmart? <laughs> um, the boot section. They, they do. Right? They, they do. But yeah. 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 Oh, <laughs> I figure they sell everything. I, I can't really go yeah. wrong. Don't, right? But you know what I mean? Like your department is slacking a bit. So, you know, shape up, but it's not the same. I mean, effectively, even the most, even the best selling comics now, um, they are running at, at figures that would have caused the issues to be canceled in, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago. 
Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, but they don't they don't have to. They they just have to they're they're testing grounds for the movie property. Well, I guess there's the indie scene too. I mean, uh, you know, I've got a lot of friends who make their own comics and seem to be, you know, they do well enough that they can keep doing it. I, you know, I don't think any of them are retiring or getting movie deals, but you know, they're getting their <laughs> stories out, which is what writers like to do. Sure. Yeah. And there's a huge and lovely movement. Um, uh, here in, in Calgary, we have what's known as panel one, which is the organization that has a conference every, every year to bring all these indie comics you know, creators together and yeah, they fill, you know, a, you know, grade school gym with booths and displays and, and that sort of thing. That's still a lot of people who are just dedicated to what they do. And of course you're not allowed to bring any of the commercial properties into their room. <laughs> like it's, it's, right? it's all just the indie stuff, you know, and, and with the way in which printing is available now and, and uh, you know, all that technology of distribution is there you get some really, really great things going on. So there is that, um, that, that, that will always keep the comic business alive and refreshed and, and maybe none of them ever sell, you know, big stuff anywhere else, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's, they do it. They really love this form. Oh, and the, the latter half of that question was any, any feel for where monster comics or monsters in comics are heading? I mean, it's, that's a tough question. If you don't have an answer, it's okay. So. You know, I see the the monster, you know, more and more being a kind of uh, uh, figure with which we can feel a great deal more sympathy. I, I, I you know, th there's a sort of cathartic quality to monsters like Venom and and uh, well, like him, um, you know, who just does what we want to do. Right. There's that kind of psychological psychological play with them. Or there is that. You oh, know, you mean the character who's basically all ego, like just or it, all id. Sorry, all id. Yeah, 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 all yeah, id. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. and then all carnage, all psychosis. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you, you know, I see them. Like I said, if not the hero, <laughs> at least much more the protagonist. Um, I mean, there will always be those the monster who's opposed to whatever hero it is. But oftentimes that monster, that kind of monster is opposed to another kind of monster, right? Mm -hmm. Who, who's the good monster. Um, yeah, I, I, that, that's where I, you know, I have no predictive power, but I, I think right. it's, it, it's, it's, that's where I think they're going. Is there going to be, you know, you know, when, when, when Spiegelman, you know, made Mouse, you know, you know, in some ways, he he talks about why he chose to do what he did, and then others, it's you know, there's lots of scholarship about it. But he took the funny animal comic. He took he took the you know the Mickey Mouse and turned it to a figure of sympathy, of huge sympathy. Right, all the all the the Jews were all the mice, and and put them through the Holocaust. Um, but the reason that that worked. Like I don't I don't know how many people would read a holo would read a Holocaust memoir where there are realistic drawings of people being burned alive or being shot or whatever, you know, all the things that were done. But you are allowed, your guard goes down when you're looking at something that's not you, 
but is enough like some part of you that you can allow yourself to feel more fully for it than you could for something that was directly you. Um, and I think that's where monsters are going to go. They, they are going to be locations of feeling, only not like before, not just fear, but sympathy, doubt. We're, we're more patient when a monster has to have a soliloquy than we are when we, you know, each other does. That's a very difficult thing to predict, but I think that's a pretty good prediction. Thank you. <laughs> so, Richard, we've got one final question for you. We've really enjoyed chatting with you. This is we could talk for a lot longer about. Oh this yeah, topic. oh yeah, yep. Oh. I think we'll have to have you back on uh, to talk again. But, I would uh, love just, to. Thank you. I would love to. It's been a, a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. But we just have one final question for you now, and that's our, our signature question that we like to ask all of our guests: What's your favorite monster? <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, when you said that at the beginning of this talk, I was going to say the creature from the Black Lagoon because he he hit my consciousness right at the right time. Mm. Right. Like, <laughs> there's that moment, you know, when you go, this is my favorite hockey team because I love that one moment. Right. Um, and I, I really do like that creature. I just like the look. Um <laughs> But now that we've talked that at length about this, I, you know, I think I'm going to go, I think I'm going to go back to, uh, to Frankenstein's monster. Um, Cause I think he for monsters is, is he for monsters is, is what Superman is to superheroes. He's you, the more I look at him, the more I see every aspect of all the other monsters that, I think are important or move me. Um, I can revisit this character. I can, I like looking at the creature, but I don't really think about it very much, but I really think a lot about, about Mary Shelley's creation. So yeah, I'm going to go with Frankenstein's monster. I love it. Good answer. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, I, I, I've seen lots of illustrations, but uh, Bernie Wrightson's uh, illustrations of, of that, book are so awesome i don't mm-hmm. just i oh my gosh yeah they're just so good anyway gone too soon made blake yeah. very happy <laughs> yeah 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 no for sure yeah and oh i mean i'm a big fan of the creature from the black lagoon too and, and we just lost uh julie adams uh in 2019 who played that just the gorgeous lead in that uh the the female lead in them just such an amazing piece of uh, cinema, the 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 costume is just so it holds up so well. It really does. It, does. Uh, it really does. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's not a super complicated film, you know, but it, it it's a hoot. Yeah. It's really fun. So doesn't have to be. Yeah, these are all great. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us in our audience. I appreciate yeah. it so much. Thank that you, Richard. Great. Yeah, it was really interesting. You're very very welcome, uh, and Blake, Karen. It just I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you. Us too. <laughs> Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Professor Richard Harrison of Mount Royal University in Alberta discussing the intersection of comic books and monsters. Check out our show notes for lots of links to material that we discussed in our conversation. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. 
Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talks, a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Therapist Uncensored, Subtext, and Small Things Often. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you again for listening and for being a part of the Monster Talk family. Monster House presentation. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.